This is Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. I'm your host, Dave Gorham. I'm a retired meteorologist with a career in the United States Air Force, commercial and broadcast weather forecasting, with a specialty of aviation meteorology. I've provided weather support to Air Force One and to Marine One. I've briefed military and corporate flight crews. I've been both a television and radio broadcast meteorologist and have spent a large part of my career providing military and commercial weather support to clients in all parts of the world. I've created this podcast series to bring you interesting but tragic stories of airplane crashes that are either caused by the weather or when weather is a contributing factor to the crash. Today's episode, When a Helicopter Crash Silenced Number One, is about the 1990 crash of a Bell Jet Ranger helicopter that was carrying a pilot and four passengers that crashed into a ski slope at night and in the fog. Among the passengers was Stevie Ray Vaughan, the legendary blues guitarist from Texas. The crash stunned the world with not only the crash being attributed to pilot error, but that it had brought an end to the amazing career of a guitarist that had burst onto the scene only seven years before with his debut album, Texas Flood, which went double platinum and was nominated for a Grammy in the Best Traditional Blues Performance category. The Texas Flood song, Rude Mood, was nominated for Best Rock Instrumental Performance, and the title of this episode refers to Number One. That's the name of the iconic Fender Stratocaster guitar that belonged to Stevie Ray. Before we get started, though, two things. First, I want to dedicate this episode to my friend Chris Page. I'll tell you why at the end of this episode. Next, I want to state up front that I'm a big fan of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Between CD and vinyl, I think I have all of his albums, including a few of the compilations that were released after his death. I could easily use this podcast episode to just play his music, and if not for copyright laws, I might. But I want to keep this story about the crash. I'm not a music reviewer, and you're not tuning into this podcast for music, no matter who the artist is. I'm an aviation meteorologist, and this podcast is about plane crashes, or in this case, a helicopter crash. So we'll keep this episode focused on the weather and the crash, even though my vinyl collection is within reach right now, and my turntable is directly in my line of sight. As soon as this recording is complete, I'm going to crank up my favorite SRV album, In Step. I mean, Texas Flood. I mean, family style. Well, you get the idea. You know, I think most fans of Stevie and his music know that he was killed in a helicopter crash as he was leaving a concert not far from Chicago, Illinois, even closer to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was an especially poignant crash, coming as it did when Stevie seemed to be on an unstoppable upward trajectory, newly and for the first time in years sober and touring on a new album named In Step. The blues legend was breaking boundaries and beginning to get comfortable with his worldwide acclaim. Maybe you even know that the crash occurred late at night and in fog. If you're just learning that, then you're now, like the rest of us, thinking, oh, well, it was dark and foggy. Maybe it wasn't a surprise that the helicopter crashed. And that's the end of the story, a dark, foggy crash that brought about an end to Stevie Ray, his music, as well as an end for the other passengers and the pilot of the helicopter. A lot of helicopters do, unfortunately, crash in the fog. Except that's not the end of the story, or at least it's not the whole story. In fact, it's really only a cursory understanding of the crash, as there were other factors, 
factors both before the crash and factors after the helicopter lifted above the ground, neither of which were mentioned in the official Aviation Accident Report issued by the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board. On Sunday evening, August 26, 1990, the second show of the Eric Clapton tour, billed as An Evening with Eric Clapton and His Band, was to begin at 5 p.m. local time. The venue was the Alpine Valley Music Theater in East Troy, Wisconsin. Alpine Valley is an open-air amphitheater located about 35 miles southwest of Milwaukee and almost the same distance, just a little bit less actually, to the western shore of Lake Michigan, the third largest of the Great Lakes on the border of the United States and Canada. On the bill with Eric and his band that night was Stevie Ray, of course, along with his band, Double Trouble, another blues guitarist, Robert Gray, and his band, the Memphis Horns. Also playing that night were more blues legends, including Buddy Guy, Jeff Healy, Stevie Ray's brother Jimmy, and Bonnie Raitt, legendary guitarists and singers all. This was an incredible lineup, and from what I could read, it was an incredible lineup at an incredible venue, the open-air Alpine Valley Music Theater. At the time, it was the largest open-air venue in the United States, and a favorite of not only the fans, but the artists, too. The reviews I read of Double Trouble set that night were excellent. Writer Michael St. John from the Wisconsin State Journal wrote the next day, quote, Texas terror Stevie Ray Vaughan was bobbing and weaving from note one through an R&B instrumental that ignited every set of vocal cords in the packed amphitheater. Singing, The House is Rocking, was overstating the obvious. By the third song, Vaughn was playing like he wished there were a few more frets on his battered Stratocaster, and his Double Trouble Trio drummer KO'd the head on his snare drum. Little Sister was full of licks that could have given Vaughn's speaker cabinets third-degree burns. Y'all Ready was the only warning the crowd received before a frenzied romp through Superstition, Couldn't Stand the Weather, and the musical machine gun burst of Crossfire, and the closer, Voodoo Child most of which was fired off one-handed before Stevie Ray Vaughan gave the stage to Eric Clapton. What a thrill, what a thrill it must have been to witness such a performance. As I mentioned, it was a full lineup. The show began at 5 p.m. By the time Eric Clapton's set finished, it was almost midnight. But if you've been to these kind of multi-artist shows before, you know an all-star jam will close out the evening. And sure enough, one by one, guitar by guitar, each superstar returned to the stage. First to join Eric on stage was Buddy Guy, then Stevie Ray came out, then Robert Cray, and finally Jimmy Vaughn. They jammed for 20 minutes and brought the house down with Sweet Home Chicago. Stevie was the last one off the stage as the lights dimmed and the show ended. The news of the crash was slow to leak out. Early the next morning, there was news of a helicopter crash near the concert venue. There were five fatalities, including a musician, the Newswire initially stated. The reports came every half hour and the puzzle pieces slowly came together. At first, it was that there was a member of Eric Clapton's entourage killed. Then it was a guitarist from Eric Clapton's band. By mid-morning, rumors had shifted and it was suspected that the guitarist killed was Stevie Ray Vaughan. Just before noon, not quite 12 hours after the crash, it was confirmed that the Texas blues legend, Stevie Ray Vaughan, was aboard the crashed helicopter. Let's talk about the weather, as this was integral to the crash. The weather was great. It was a summer evening in the northern United States. 
The high temperature that day was 86 Fahrenheit, that's 30 degrees Celsius. The area was under a dome of high pressure, so there were only a few clouds during the day, and the temperature fell into the upper 70s after dark, and the middle 70s by the time the show ended. In Celsius, that's a range of about 26 to 24 degrees. But the humidity was high. Remember, the theater was just 32 miles from Lake Michigan. That's 52 kilometers, so there was lots of moisture in the air. In the afternoon, it was warm and sticky, but by the time of the crash, the temperature was in the middle 70s, it was pleasant, but the dew point was in the lower 70s, so it was cooler now and still quite moist. As the air cooled closer and closer to the dew point, the air thickened, and shortly after 10 p.m., dew formed on the cars in the parking lot, and fog began to form over the open fields that surrounded Alpine Valley. There was a golf course that was on the east and south sides of the theater, and a ski resort was on the south side next to the golf course as well. Around the west and north sides of Alpine Valley is forest and farmland. Even today, there's not much of anything around. The closest town is the town of East Troy, Wisconsin, about four miles to the north. By midnight, as the all-star performers were beginning Sweet Home Chicago, the fog was becoming more and more dense over the fields. It was closing in on the amphitheater, but it wasn't too thick, at least not yet. Horizontal visibility was becoming restricted, but vertical visibility was still okay. However, as the minutes ticked by, the fog thickened more and more. Thinking ahead and knowing the show would likely end around 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning, and knowing the performers would be tired and would want to return to their hotels in Chicago quickly, the concert promoter arranged to have four helicopters standing by to transport the band members and staff back to Chicago. The promoter parked the four helicopters on the grass of the golf course. Looking at Google Earth, the distance from the stage to where the helicopters were likely parked looks like about 100 yards, or about 90 meters. Probably a nice walk in the cool, dark air after working up a sweat on stage. By air, this would be a flight of about 70 miles in about 40-ish minutes in the Jet Ranger. They were going to Miggs Field, a small corporate airport just east of Chicago. Miggs, by the way, as an airport, has been closed since 2003. But without a helicopter, this would be about a two-hour drive by car. Three of the four helicopters made it to Chicago without issue. One was a no-show at Miggs. The Bell 206B, known as the Jet Ranger in civilian form and as the OH-58 Kiowa in military form, is a single-engine, two-bladed, light-utility helicopter. It's a familiar shape in the sky, you've likely seen it many times, especially if you're like me and you look up into the sky every time you hear the whoomp 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 of a passing helicopter. The Bell 427 is the twin-engine version, and visually it's difficult to distinguish from the 206. The 206 is common in traffic reporting, police work, industrial transport services, power line repair, air taxi services, and more. In the movies, you've seen this helicopter in such classics as Diamonds Are Forever, The Spy Who Loved Me, Blue Thunder, but not the main helicopter in that movie. That was the modified French Gazelle that played the Blue Thunder title role. And you've also seen it in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Remember when Sarah Connor was in the police SWAT truck firing at the T-1000 Terminator in the helicopter that was chasing her? That was a Bell Jet Ranger. The first flight of the 206 Jet Ranger was in 1962 and was produced through 2017. 
More than 7,300 Jet Rangers came off the assembly line in those 55 years. The 206 has the best safety record in its class. It also has the lowest operating cost. It's reliable, and it has the best auto-rotational characteristics of any helicopter flying today. Auto-rotation, by the way, is the ability for a helicopter to land without an engine as the descending aircraft maintains a positive or upward flow of wind against the rotating blades, which then allows the helicopter to maintain some form of controlled descent, even without an engine. The Crash Is it peculiar that a helicopter crashes in the fog at night? Maybe, but of course it's not a given. Most don't. And flying at night, just like airplanes, most helicopters flying at night don't crash. Helicopters have a lot of the same instruments as their fixed-wing brethren, and helicopter pilots can have similar qualifications. Flying a helicopter is very different than flying an airplane, so it can't be said that a good airplane pilot will be a good helicopter pilot, or vice versa. But many pilots excel at both. Therefore, like with any crash, it comes down to the particulars of each flight, each machine, each pilot. So what happened on this particular flight? Let's first talk about the logistics. On this night, for this concert, there were four helicopters reserved for flying the band members and various personnel back to Chicago. The company hired to provide the helicopters and fly these people was a company called OmniFlight. OmniFlight was founded in 1962 and was acquired by Air Methods several years ago. It's tough to know how OmniFlight was structured in 1990, but today, Air Methods specializes in air ambulance operations in many parts of the United States. On their website, there's no mention of private charter services anymore, though if you've flown the tourist helicopter service in Hawaii, Blue Hawaiian, that's part of the Air Methods family. So, there are four OmniFlight helicopters lined up and ready to take their passengers back to Chicago. It was midnight, it was moist, there was fog. Like the cars in the parking lot, the helicopters had dew on their windshields. But despite the fog, weather was not an issue and the flights were officially categorized as VMC, Visual Meteorological Conditions. That means the pilots would not need their instruments to complete the flight to Chicago. That said, weather was an issue. The local weather office stated that there were pockets of dense fog in this region and in places the visibility was below two miles. This would require pilots to fly by instruments rather than visually, yet the flight was still categorized as VMC, Visual Meteorological Conditions. Though no mention of this was discovered in my research, the helicopters would likely fly with some navigation aids, like a VOR, and I say that because 70 miles at night without some sort of navigation support would be asking a lot of the pilots. Again, the helicopters were flying under VMC rules, instrument flight was not necessary or required. As it turns out, even though the instruments would not be needed, three of the four pilots were indeed certified for instrument flying, but one was not. The pilot without instrument certification was the pilot of the third helicopter. However, given the VMC conditions, pilot number three was legally qualified to make this flight. This pilot, Jeff Brown, had his instrument rating in fixed-wing aircraft, that's airplanes, but not rotary-wing aircraft, that's helicopters. 
and for some reason, he was assigned to this job. But again, given how the weather conditions were reported, Jeff was legally qualified to fly this flight. Each Jet Ranger would carry four passengers and the pilot. Stevie Ray, his brother Jimmy, and his wife, plus one other, were going to ride together in helicopter number three. However, as the threesome arrived at their chopper, with engine running and blades already spinning overhead, they discovered that three of the four seats were already occupied with some of Clapton's crew. I'm unsure of just how unplanned this was. Did the other three get on this helicopter by mistake? Were they not even supposed to be on any helicopter and they took a first-come, first-served position and bumped Stevie Ray's group? I didn't come across any of that in my research. Either way, there was one seat open and Stevie Ray asked his brother if he could have it. Jimmy Vaughn and his wife Connie stayed behind. By now, the fog had become dense. The Alpine Valley Music Theater sits in a small valley, and the cool night air would tend to pool, undisturbed by local wind. As the reported spread between the dew point and the temperature at the local airport was just a couple of degrees, near the theater, the spread was likely even less, allowing thicker or denser fog than the fog forming in other areas. Still, the fog wasn't terribly deep, the pilots only needed to lift straight up above the fog and then enjoy the uneventful trip to Chicago. The same general conditions were in place the day before, generally few clouds and then at night some fog. In other words, the overall weather conditions were a typical fog setup scenario and it should not have been a surprise to the OmniFlight team. The four helicopters were lined up nose to tail and took off at two minute intervals. Each took off without issue, though it was noted that the third helicopter, the one with Stevie Ray, took off quickly and steeply and began to turn south toward Chicago at a lower altitude and at a higher rate of speed than the others. There was no distress call, no mayday, no curious call from the pilot asking for assistance. In fact, nobody knew about the crash until the three other helicopters had completed their mission and the number three chopper was missing. It took a couple of hours to realize there was trouble. The fog made finding the wreckage impossible at the beginning. Finally, about six hours after the suspected crash, and as the first light of day was dawning, a Civil Air Patrol search helicopter found the wreckage. With daylight, it became obvious that the OmniFlight helicopter had failed to clear the 300-foot-high ski slope just to the south of Alpine Valley. The impact zone was 50 feet below the summit. All the passengers were killed instantly. The crash site was just six-tenths of a mile from where the choppers had been parked. You'd think a crash like that would be easy to hear. It seemed close enough anyway. You'd think that knowing of the crash and finding the crash would be simple, except it wasn't. Consider that the concert had just finished, so there were lots of cars starting up in the parking lot and moving towards the exits, and probably lots of people still celebrating the great show. Plus, there was still one helicopter, with its engine running and blades spinning, still on the ground, likely between the concert goers and the crash site. And let's not forget the fog. The fog has a blanketing effect and can be very much a limiting factor in how far sound can travel because it absorbs the sound waves of the crash. There was no explosion, there was no fire, and very little sound thanks to the fog and all the other distracting noise. No fire was good news, at least on first thought. A fire and an explosion would have made the crash site easy to find, even in the fog, though tragic for the occupants. But with all the occupants being killed upon impact, finding the crash site quickly 
wasn't necessary, at least from a life-saving perspective. Of course, nobody knew that at the time. How tragic would it have been if there were survivors and they weren't found for six hours, despite just being half a mile from where they departed? The NTSB investigation ruled the cause of the crash as, quote, improper planning decision by the pilot and his failure to attain adequate altitude before flying over rising terrain at night. Factors related to the accident were darkness, fog, haze, rising terrain, and the lack of visual clues that were available to the pilot, unquote. In other words, pilot error. But is that all there is? Is it simply pilot error? I think in a nutshell, yes, but there is more to it than what was included in the NTSB report. In my research of this crash, I came upon the research of Colin B. Cahoon. Colin was an Army helicopter pilot following college and then continued his studies afterward to become a lawyer. His Army flying had been in a Bell, Kiowa, the Army version of the one that had struck the Alpine Valley ski slope. Colin, working for a Dallas law firm at the time, would be representing the helicopter's engine manufacturer, Allison Gas Turbine. Lawsuits had been filed on behalf of all the passengers against, in addition to Allison, the operating company OmniFlight and the helicopter manufacturer, Bell Helicopter. As a pilot of this same machine, and now a lawyer, Colin had questions about what happened that weren't specifically addressed by the NTSB's final analysis. Namely, why would a perfectly good helicopter fly into a ski slope, even at night, even in the fog? It shouldn't have happened. The pilot should have just climbed straight up through the fog. Why did he not do this? To get these answers, Colin hired an expert. Though Colin was a pilot, a helicopter pilot of the same machine, he didn't call himself an expert. So he hired a man that was, a man named Joe Kettles. Joe was an expert, one who had amassed 20,000 hours of helicopter flight time in his 30-year career. Colin and Joe decided to recreate the night of August 26th and the early morning hours of August 27th as best they could. They recreated the scenario in two ways, one at night, like it was when the helicopter crashed, and one during the day. As the test helicopter sat in the same position as the Vaughn helicopter, in the dark, Colin, in the co-pilot seat, noted the bright lights of the nearby golf course and the parking lots, and he also noted that there was no fog. But except for the lack of fog, conditions were nearly the same as the band members and the pilot faced on that foggy night. When everything was ready, the test helicopter lifted off. Things were progressing as expected. And then, as the test chopper climbed above the lights of the parking lots and the golf course, the pilots were suddenly and completely blind. The two pilots recreating the doomed flight soon realized the problem, and it was not the lack of fog. On the ground, the bright lights of the parking lots and the golf course caused the eyes of the pilots to constrict. The iris of the human eye constricts to limit light entering the eye in bright conditions, and it expands to let more light enter the eye in low light or dark conditions like driving into a dark tunnel in the middle of the day, for a moment, your constricted eyes provide very little visual information in the dark tunnel. The same thing happens in reverse, like when you take your sunglasses off on a bright day. For a couple of moments after you take your glasses off, you have to squint while your eyes adjust to the bright light. 
Sitting on the ground on the night of the crash, the eyes of all four pilots had adjusted to the ambient lighting conditions. In the bright lights, their irises had constricted. Their small pupils actually had plenty of light, more than enough light to see. However, when the pilots climbed above the bright lights into the darkness, their constricted irises and small pupils could not adapt fast enough for the new, darkened conditions. As each pilot climbed into the dark sky, they were momentarily blind while their eyes adjusted to the new darkness. They weren't fully blind, of course. They could still see the lights of their instruments inside their cockpits. They just couldn't see outside. Do you see the problem? Three of the four pilots were instrument rated. When three of the four pilots were momentarily blinded to the outside visual cues, their eyes naturally went to their instruments, instruments that they could still see perfectly. The non-instrument rated pilot did not shift his eyes to his instruments. And not only was he without an instrument rating, he had failed his instrument rating qualification test just recently before this foggy night. Back in the test chopper, the pilot Joe shifted his vision to the instruments when he could no longer see outside, just like three of the pilots after the concert. Within a few seconds, the pilots, including now Joe, who was performing the experiment after the crash, rose above the ski slope, all of their eyes adjusting to the new ambient light conditions at flight level. The lights on the ground between Alpine Valley and Chicago gave a clear sense of not only the way to Chicago, but what was up and what was down. The blinding lights and the patchy fog were well below them. The next day, the two test pilots, or recreation pilots, returned in the morning to perform the test again. Constricting irises were not part of the test for this morning, as Joe needed unrestrained vision for the next test. He knew what he was going to do, but he did not tell Colin. The helicopter engine started and came up to temperature. Joe told Colin to hold the controls, but also to close his eyes until Joe told him to open them again. So when the helicopter lifted off the ground, Colin's eyes were closed. However, he could feel Joe working the controls. In a helicopter, that would be the collective in the left hand, the cyclic in the right hand between the pilot's legs, and the anti-torque foot pedals the three working together to control up-down, forward-backward, and side-to-side -side motion. In a few moments, Joe shouted above the engine roar for Colin to open his eyes. And when he did, he was terrified to see they were careening toward the ski slope. A crash was imminent. Joe managed to miss the ski slope, but only barely. But Colin quickly realized what had happened on the night of the crash. It wasn't the fog that caused the crash. It was the momentary blindness brought about by the lights of the parking lots and the golf course and the inability to see or feel what was happening to the helicopter. When this happened to the other pilots, their eyes went to the instruments. When it happened to the non-instrument rated pilot, it appeared that his training was not sufficient enough to shift his vision to the instruments so that he could correct or prevent his subtle and inadvertent maneuvering. Colin could only barely feel Joe's inputs on the controls. For the other pilot, however, the input was likely imperceptible, or if he did feel it, his visual cues outside the cockpit could not provide enough reference on how to straighten his aircraft and correct his flight path. He slammed into the ski slope, likely without even knowing it. Since the day of this crash, Pundits have argued and posited about the what-ifs. 
What if Stevie Ray hadn't gotten on this flight? Where would he be today? What kind of amazing music would he be churning out today? What if Jimmy had boarded the Jet Ranger instead? What if the pilot was instrument rated? What if there was no fog? What if the parking lot lights and the golf course lights were dimmed for the night air operations? What if Eric Clapton or Buddy Guy had boarded the ill-fated aircraft? Jeff Healy, Robert Cray, Bonnie Raitt. What if, what if, what if? One thing's for sure, Heaven gained another amazing blues guitarist that night. After Stevie's death, Brother Jimmy wrote a song that was a tribute to his brother. It's called Six Strings Down. The first verse goes like this. Alpine Valley in the middle of the night, six strings down on the heaven-bound flight. Got a pick, a strap, a guitar on his back. Ain't gonna cut the angels no slack. Heaven done called another blue stringer back home. That's all for this time on Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about this crash, there's a lot of information online. Surprisingly, the detail-rich aircraft accident report that I rely on for other crashes was only five pages long for this crash. Technically, the report I found was the Aviation Accident Final Report, not an Aircraft Accident Report, which can be more than 100 pages. Perhaps because this aircraft was operating in a non-scheduled manner and was a much smaller aircraft and the accident was much smaller, there were only five pages to the report. I'm not sure. You can find this report in several locations, including ntsb.gov. There's also a great write-up of the crash on the Stevie Ray Vaughan archive site at srvarchive.com. This site is dedicated to keeping the memories of Stevie Ray Vaughan alive. There's a page on the site that details the crash with several pictures of the crash site, a link to the NTSB report, the autopsy report, and Stevie Ray Vaughan's birth certificate. There are also scanned newspaper clippings that detail the crash and the loss of Stevie Ray Vaughan and how it was impacting the world in the days following the crash. It's all great stuff and I enjoyed reading it, though I only glimpsed at the autopsy report. The research I found by Colin Cahoot, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, it's spelled C-A-H-O-O-T. The article was on dmagazine.com. The article was published on the 30th anniversary of Stevie Ray's death, August 26, 2020. There's another great article on loudersound.com. This article was published a year after the D Magazine report on the 31st anniversary of Stevie Ray's death. Not only is it a great article, but there are links to some of Stevie Ray's best songs on YouTube. Songs like Ain't Gonna Give Up On Love, Lenny, and my second favorite SRV tune, Crossfire. Speaking of links to Stevie Ray's music, search YouTube for Jimmy Vaughn's tribute, Six Strings Down. There are several versions and they're all enjoyable and rather emotional. This podcast is researched, written, edited, and produced by me. On the air traffic control side, we have former U.S. Air Force and FAA controllers Cindy and Michael Hintz and Tony Gorham. On the weather side, we have meteorologists Chris Abair and Nathan Stamford. On the piloting side, we have former U.S. Air Force and retired FedEx Captain Michelle Acorn and FedEx First Officer Larry Gregory. The RCL team is a great team because of these talented folks. They make this podcast detailed and thorough and make sure I don't stray too far off the glide path. I can't thank them enough. I have one more thing to mention, but before I do that, let me thank you, the listeners. 
I'm happy to bring these stories to you, to all of you who have a love of weather, aviation, and history, just like me. Thanks for climbing aboard and settling in for the latest from the Radar Contact Lost team. Lastly, I want to tell you that I lost a good friend, a best friend of 40 years to suicide, just two days before I began working on this episode, now not quite a week ago. Chris was an Air Force veteran, and that's how and where we met. We've ridden motorcycles together all over the United States and Europe. We've flown powered paragliders and small airplanes together. Me, always the passenger when it came to flying. We even walked away from a small plane crash together. I like to think it was like when Chuck Yeager walked away from his crashed and smoldering F-104 in that memorable scene from The Right Stuff, but no, it was barely half that dramatic. We made two movies about powered paragliding and were selected to attend a film festival in Moscow, Russia, of all places. That was a trip for memory lane, most definitely. The film won an honorable mention. I was happy, but Chris wanted more. I was with Chris and Patty when they got married and with them for the birth of their daughter. Chris was a huge Stevie Ray Vaughan fan too, which is why I picked this episode to do right now. I'm sure Chris's suicide was not related to his military service, as his service was 40 years ago. But this is an opportunity for me to mention that veteran suicide in this country is a serious issue. There are varying statistics, and you'll have to read the fine print to fully understand each one. But one well-publicized statistic is that 22 veterans commit suicide each day in the United States. If you're a U.S. veteran and need help, you can dial 988, then press the number 1. Or you can visit the Veterans Crisis Line online at veteranscrisisline.net. You can also go to va.gov and search suicide prevention. Blue skies to you, my friend, Chris Page. With each new episode of Radar Contact Lost, I will bring you interesting but tragic stories of plane crashes from across the United States and from around the world. When these crashes involve the weather as a possible cause or as a contributing factor, I'll rely on my 40-year career as an Air Force, broadcast, and commercial meteorologist with a specialty of aviation meteorology to explain what happened and why. I'll also lean on my experts in air traffic control meteorology, and piloting to peel back the curtain to take a closer look at what really happened. If you like this episode, give a like, leave a review if you can, and tell your friends. Word of mouth for a podcast like this is always the best form of advertising, and it seems to be much easier than trying to leave a review. On Instagram, follow at Radar Contact Lost Podcast. It's the only platform where I communicate with the world. I provide behind-the-scenes, time schedules, interesting factoids, and more. Check it out. We're also on YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, send an email to rclpodcast1 at gmail.com. That's rclpodcast, the number one, at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Dave Gorham. <laughs>